Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller, an African-American, licensed psychotherapist, professor, diversity coach, consultant, and author. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias, anything that marginalizes and oppresses. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, we'll have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? Dee Barbadillo is a community organizer who works alongside Black Lives Matter LA, the Check the Sheriff Coalition, and the Philippines U.S. Solidarity Organization, Puso SoCal. In addition, Dee is an active legal observer and co-president of the executive board for the National Lawyers Guild, Los Angeles. Dee was born and raised in Los Angeles and is second-generation Filipina-American. She went to college at UCLA and law school at the University of the Pacific, McGeorge School of Law. In her free time, she likes to organize pop-up markets for local small businesses owned by people of color. She is a powerhouse, and we are so happy to have her on CTN with J.D. Fuller today. Again, Dee, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I greatly appreciate your presence. I'm happy to be here. Right on. So I'd like to give just a little, have you give a little background on where you come from. Who are you? Can you tell the audience? <laughs> I've oversimplified the question, but you know. <laughs> the basics, the basics. Um, so go. my name is Dee. My name is Dee. I was born and raised in Los Angeles, which kind of makes me a unicorn in LA nowadays. Um, really? And not that I am against all the transplants, but it's just kind of interesting to know that whenever I say I'm from LA, people get excited. <laughs> So I was born and raised in L.A. I am Filipina-American. My parents immigrated from the Philippines, so I'm the first generation to be born here. I was, you know, I didn't leave L.A. until grad school. I went to college at UCLA. Um, UCLA is really where my activism started. It's where I was activated. I stopped there because I want to dig into that. Because okay. <laughs> you, you went to an all-girls school. And then mm-hmm. UCLA. Talk about how that that facilitated your activism. You know, it's interesting. Going to an all-girl high school prepared me in ways I didn't know I was being prepared. Um, when okay. I got to college, people would say, oh, you don't seem intimidated in the classroom. I, I remember hearing that in a section, you know, the sections with the TAs, they were, you know, offshoot discussion groups from the big hundred plus person lectures. And I remember being confused by that and asking the TA what she meant by that. And the TA said, you don't seem intimidated because from my experience, our male students tend to dominate the classroom. I had no concept of that because I didn't have male classmates up until that point. So to me, actively participating was what I knew. So I sort of accidentally found my femme voice because I went to an all-girls school. Not to say that women can't be empowered, you know, to find their voice in other ways, but that was one thing that I will say that I'm very glad to have gotten from going to an all-girls school. Absolutely. I've heard that. I've heard that before. I actually worked in in an all-girls school many years ago, and that was one of the reasons that it was really important, particularly in middle school. So, um, Mm. you know, getting the girls at that very vulnerable middle school age was an important time to have them find their voice. So it's interesting that happened to you just going there in high school. Yeah. 
And yeah. I, I, you know, people always ask, but what about the boys? And I go, well, I didn't know any other experience, so I don't feel like I missed out on anything. And I valued that experience. I think it helped me develop really good friendships with women. And so I appreciate that. As for the transition to UCLA, it was exciting to go to a big school. It was exciting to have all these, you know, academic options. But really, like I said, I got activated <laughs> in yeah. UCLA. Um, you know, I my uncle had been a part of the Filipino group at UCLA and my dad didn't go there, but he said, you know, you should check it out. And so I did. And while I was there, I was just learning a lot about my culture, learning a lot about things that had happened in my life. I think the most poignant story I have is that, so when I was in high school, my grandfather is actually a World War II veteran, but he was born in the Philippines and he he was one of the Filipino soldiers that was told if you fight under the US flag, we'll facilitate citizenship, you'll get full VA benefits, come fight under the U.S. flag. And so the U.S. at the time, being a colony of the Philippines, that made sense. So he did it for his family. When I was in high school, my grandfather needed to sort of cash in on those benefits. You know, he needed to see the doctors. He needed, he just needed the full VA rights. And for some reason, they were saying, no, you don't have any of those rights. You are a veteran, but you're excluded. And we couldn't figure out why. I had no idea. You know, we were trying to find his commanding officers, trying to just go through that. But to no avail. I go to a Friday 5.30 meeting at a, you know, student uh, Samahong Filipino uh, meeting, and they're showing this documentary called Broken Promises. And I'm like, okay, what is this about? It's about World War II veterans who fought under the U.S. flag. And then when the Rescission Act, it was actually called the Rescission Act was passed, that said, thanks for fighting, but you don't get these benefits anymore. You can be a veteran. You can maybe have your citizenship if you go through these channels, but VA benefits are no go for you. Um, it was called the Rescission Act. And then there was my answer, you know, um, and it was eye-opening to say the least. And then from there, I started taking Asian American studies classes, ethnic studies classes, and that just sort of you know, in a good way, I fell down the rabbit hole. Yeah. So I had a similar thing happen in grad school when I did my thesis. Man, I did a whole educational journey in history that I never knew anything about. And it was really eye opening. You had that at a younger age. What a gift. Yeah. yeah. And it, it was just so interesting because I think, you know, you get to college, my first year of college, I'm trying, I came in as an English major, definitely did not last in that major for more than a quarter. I take this Asian American studies class and then I'm suddenly learning about ethnic studies and I'm flabbergasted that you can get a degree in learning about your history, about American history we never heard about. And so I just ate it up and it was just eye-opening and the world changed for me. Yeah, I bet. I knew nothing about that in undergrad, yeah. which is probably why I basically plunked out. <laughs> I did not see anything that was going on besides partying. I mean, I'm not going to say I was the best student. I took all the classes. Those are the only classes I did well in. Unfortunately, they make you take other classes, too. So. <laughs> That's great. That's great. So your parent, you mentioned your dad. What was your parents' influence in this? And how were you empowered to 
you know, wrap yourself around all that you were learning? I think I was lucky in the sense that, for example, both of my parents immigrated to the United States at different ages. So my dad came when he was a teenager, his late teens, my mom, I think her late 20s. So it was two different experiences. My dad knew what it was like to be a young person in the U.S. And he immigrated to Hawaii, Oahu. So he was in Hawaii. And then he was in the Bay Area, Milpita, San Jose area. Luckily, being Filipino in those areas, while he was an immigrant, Filipinos speak English really well because colonization. Um, But, but, you know, it was easy for him to assimilate. And so he knew what it was like to be a young person. And so when I come to him with these thoughts, he listened. He didn't say, you know, do something different. What are you doing? He listened. I think he might have been amused. (laughs) And I think as long as I, you know, was safe in what I was doing, he he, he didn't see anything wrong with it. He never thought, you know, do something else. My mom was a little bit more traditional. Academia was really important to her. I ended up also being a pol- political science major, which I think put her at ease. <laughs> that it wasn't just like an Asian American studies major. She thought it was interesting, especially the things that had to do with, you know, finding out what happened. With, it was her father, the the veteran. So I think that made her feel better about it. And, you know, I laugh because in the last couple of years with a lot of things that have been happening, I get to jokingly say, remember that degree? It's coming in handy. (laughs) Let me ask you this. How much of their own, what I consider internalized depression, you know, that forced assimilation Mm -hmm. impacted their challenge in seeing what you were doing, like regarding safety and regarding Mm -hmm. the usefulness of Asian American studies, like how, you know what I mean? How do you think that? I mean, they were definitely not understanding that Asian American studies was a major at all. Not understanding that that can be a degree. And I think what what naturally happens is there's an Asian experience and then there's the Asian American experience. You know, my parents are immigrants. I will never have that experience. You know, I have the privilege of having been born in the country where I live. So I'm lucky in that sense. My parents, like there definitely was a factor in having to assimilate. And I think more so my dad has always been more of a, um, I don't want to say my mom was closed-minded, but my dad has always been very open-minded about things. Um, I think California suits him, the diversity, everything about it. My mom as well. I think my mom... She just had to understand that what I was doing was like not just a fun degree in college and that I was actually really invested in this sort of work. So, but I tell her about it. I give her updates and, you know, I'll hear that I'm proud of you. And so I know that she's hearing it. She's listening to it. Yeah. Maybe she doesn't know the extent to which I'm in this, you know, when I'm out at protest, maybe she doesn't know exactly how dangerous it gets, but... It's okay. Well, 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 he knows that I text her when I come home and that's, that's, I think that works. That's important. (laughs) You know, I I hear a lot of people whose families have immigrated and a lot of people I interview on the, on this show who say, you know, I had the privilege and these are people from the global majority. And I always want to counteract that with, there's nothing privileged about our lives. You may have had additional access given your parents struggle, but their struggle was a struggle. It did not provide privilege. It provided opportunities, but they, yeah. they also bear the, the brunt of what they had to do to make it happen for you. You know what I mean? I think that's 
that's an interesting reframing and you're right. It's not a privilege. I think I had the ease of not having the ease. I guess that's it. It's like, it's not a privilege it's because the opposite shouldn't be the privilege. I did have the ease of being born, you know, not having to pick up my life and move to another country. Right. So really their struggles bore me, as you said, access and ease. It's interesting too, because I think, especially with my mom and my dad, it's interesting to see how I think maybe unlike other families or other parent-child relationships where maybe they were born in this country or born into the country they were settled in, we sort of experienced the United States at the same time. Like they obviously have <laughs> decades head start on me, but my mom had switched careers at some point. Okay. She went to school. My dad you know, was he was Air Force and then he was in the Bay. He had a whole life in Hawaii that when he talks about it, sounds foreign to me. And so it's interesting that they live these full, complete other lives in other countries and then full, complete lives in this country and then the lives that I know them as my parents. So it's interesting to grow up or maybe not grow up, but experience the U.S. with your parents at the same time. That's very cool. That's yeah. very cool. What a different lens, huh? Yeah, it's a completely different lens. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't heard that often. So that, that's good. That's interesting to hear. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. yeah. So I listened to a discussion you had in which you talked about being second generation. And mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit more about that? I think people get confused about what that means specifically. And you've sort of covered it, but just go mm -hmm. a little bit more in detail about what that means. Sure. Maybe it's the quote unquote academic <laughs> definition, but sec second generation is actually the generation that well, let me back up. First generation is the immigrant generation. So my parents, for example, they were born in the Philippines. They immigrated to the United States. So they're first generation, as in the first generation to come to America. Second generation is the first generation that is born um, in the immigrated country. So I'm second generation. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I always like to hear how people who are, who are second generation explain it. There's always a little slight different twinge or take on it and I appreciate it. Yeah. And I think because that's not how I feel and because of what you just said earlier, I don't, I think people seem somehow think like, oh, second gen generation, you're somehow more um, American. And that may not be the case. <laughs> it just happens yeah. to be, I, I think of it like an academic sort of definition. Absolutely. Yeah. I understand that. Um, I love that when you, uh, an article I read where you said, um, you know, you became, I, I don't know if the interviewer said it, but you wrapped yourself right around it where you became radicalized at UCLA. I love oh. that concept. Yeah, I mean, you hear about a lot of things, but you become radicalized also because you have access to history that was not taught to you in middle school, elementary school, high school, right? That's such regimented history. And then when you realize how much you didn't learn, you're kind of wondering how much of the history you were taught was revisionist and you realize it was probably all of it. Yes. So, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's enough to radicalize you. It did it to me. I was pissed. Yeah. I was so yeah. angry. And I started digging and I was like, oh my God, all these years, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. It was so limited and the access was there. We just didn't know the pathway. Yeah. The other thing too is UCLA, you know, I get it. Like cultural, ethnic organizations aren't for everyone. But I think what was interesting is UCLA has this rich history of, you know, Yes, I joined the Filipino group, but the Filipino group was called was a part of these group that was officially unofficially termed like the mother organizations. It was 
it was the African Student Union, it was Mecha, it was the Vietnamese Student Union, you know, it was like the indigenous like student groups. And while everyone did their own thing, there were certain things that like in the past, like during apartheid, those were the students that organized to get Coca-Cola removed from campus, right? Which mattered at that time. You know, that sounds small now because people are somehow, somehow activism and like protest became like old hat in the last two years, but that was a huge deal for students to come together and organize that, right? During, um, during that time. And so like, there was this idea of maintaining that legacy of working together. And so not just the Asian American history, but when you got into the cultural, political education workshops that these student groups would hold and you would go to the other student groups, um, political educations, you're realizing how much history is tied to each other. And yet we were taught history as if like the U.S. was in this bubble. And so, that once you became an, once you were an immigrant here, that you just joined the bubble. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. But just to understand how connected people really are is really, I think. The, the, the biggest takeaway. Like, yes, I learned a lot about Filipino American history, but wow, we are connected <laughs> to so many other cultures, so many other people. So, yeah, yeah, that's a good segue. You know, just like Black people, Asians are not a monolith. I have to mm-hmm. preface it by saying that. You know, having said that, and generally speaking, there's a history of t- tension between our community. Mm-hmm. It, I, I experienced it very obviously when I lived in L.A., and then became more aware of it over the years. And I'm just wondering, is it changing? And and if so, what do you think the catalyst is for that change? I think we're going, you know, that's interesting, especially at this time, it is changing. But I think what's hard is that Asian folks, Asian American folks, because of one, being lumped together, considered a monolith, to the different experiences of Asian folks. Like there are so many different experiences as a Filipino person, as a Southeast Asian person versus, you know, somebody from another part of Asia and what their their immigrant experience is. And so I think there has been progress and there has been change, but there are certain topics where Asians are, are still going to be the wedge. And so I think what we saw, let's say in the last two years with the it's not my favorite phrase, but the stop Asian hate, you know, movement, people were realizing that, you know, they put up a black square <laughs> in Mar- uh, in May 2020 and understanding that like, oh, you know, people were calling for solidarity. And now that I'm calling for solidarity, maybe I didn't do enough then as I call for it. And I think that's an eye-opening experience and that some people all have. And then there are those, you know, that have been radicalized and are like, yes, who maybe don't like the phrase stop Asian hate, which I can explain in a little bit. And then you have folks who weren't quite paying attention. And then now we're seeing, you know, looking forward, the topic of affirmative action is coming up. And that's like the easy place for to put Asian folks as like the wedge between the white and non-white folks. So yeah. it's, I, I think... There's not an easy answer, is the answer. No, but I am, seeing, I am seeing some progress. And it's always been somewhat of a frustration as somebody who really looks to, as solidarity work as something that, like solidarity work is sort of my, it's, it's the role I think I, I, I need to play. I yeah. see that. I see that a lot with you. And, you know, I, I consider myself a little late in getting to know who you were, but I'm just so happy I did because I love what you do. <laughs> I'm one of many, one of many. Oh. You know what I always say? I always pat myself on the back and said, you know, we were doing a lot of this when there was no social media. 
And so it's so cool to see you all come up and get, you know, your your just representation in social media. And I, and I think it is. I always appreciate when you all say that, that, you know, so many came before me and there are so many others out there who may not have that same kind of, you know. I had to learn to use social media for this. My social media before this was, you know, dogs and food and, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I feel that. I get that completely. So. Talking about the solidarity, look, there is no easy answer, but there is a history where there was a piece of solidarity. I think what mm-hmm. you allude to, I say often when I teach, is, you know, the unfortunate reality, again, not a monolith, but of certain parts of the Asian community are this close to white is right, academically, you know, stellar, um, pristine mm-hmm. student. And that is yeah. what has separated us in some ways, yeah. is this view that, you know, and, and colorism, right? So all of that has played a part in this goal for whiteness that has been the wedge, I think. Yeah. You know, I mean, Asian folks are people of color, but by and large, the role, quote unquote, that we've been given, and I say been given is by, you know, the whole white supremacist sort of system is that they are like white supremacy says that we are quote unquote, close enough to whiteness because they need to deem a model minority so that they can say that those whose proximity to whiteness, they um, are is not as close, you know, brown folks, indigenous folks, black folks, you know, they're saying Asian folks have a closer proximity to whiteness because they need to say that the folks who are black or brown or indigenous, look, these people can do it, right? But that's not taking right. into account that the, most of the Asian immigrants that came in, they were handpicked, essentially, right? They came from the wealthier Asian nations. They were not refugees at the time. They were all um, folks with high um, education degrees. So these folks were handpicked. Like the way Asian folks, the wave of immigration, the, you know, once you got into like the mid, like the early to mid 20th century, we're all folks that were super smart, had a lot of money, you know, had some sort of power where they were coming from. And then you you sort of drill into them like, all right, you are the model minority. And then you tell other folks, you tell like black folks, brown folks, indigenous folks, like, why can't you be like them? Well, the history That's is it. different. You handpicked these quote unquote elite folks. And then just to, you know, further emphasize that part, the part that people don't talk about a lot of these successful Asian immigrants, right? Let's say they come to Los Angeles and they're told, welcome to the US. I want to use my medical degree. I'm oh, sorry, we don't take your medical degree here. Hey. So you see all these Asian folks who come to the US who are drawn here, told to come here. And then they're told that they can't be the successful person they were in another country. So they end up you know, buying businesses, laundromats, nail salons, you know, liquor stores. And they go, we want to be, let's say, in Culver City. And they're like, no, 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 sorry, you can't be in Culver City. We won't give you a loan for that. But you can be in Inglewood. You can be in South LA, right? So then they take up, yeah. well, let's say, a liquor store in South LA and like, hey, congratulations, there's your American dream. You have your business. But somebody local to that area, mm-hmm. a black person is like, I got denied a business loan for that exact same place, but I'm from here. I live here. What happened? 
So you created that wedge, you know, like this wedge is it's created, you know, capitalism is very much like white supremacist. So like you can see all the machinations of how black, brown versus like Asian folks happen because of the people in power up top. Like we're floundering on the bottom to supposedly try to get as close to whiteness, but you're pushing people down. You're pushing Asian folks down on top of black and brown folks. First it's, of all, I feel like my head's going to nod off for everything you're saying. I'm, I feel like I'm like a bobblehead. I can't talk nodding enough. So it's incredible the way you laid it out. And people don't know the nuances. Yeah. And I think that's so important to connect those dots. So I really appreciate you putting that together. It's really helpful. And I think it's hard, too, that when you're trying to explain this to other people, it almost feels like you have to have, what do they call it in sales? Um an elevator pitch, right? You have to be able to yeah. make that well, by the time you get up to explore. I'm like, that is not an elevator pitch for why people of color have a hard time with each other. Like why there's inter, you know, racial like tensions. So it's hard because the nuances, it's much easier to be like, why can't you be like them? And like, oh, this person took my spot. It's much right, easier. Right. And yeah. look, blame is key as a, as a tool of white supremacy. Um, you know, as is internal struggle amongst the people from the global majority. What do you think we need to do to really unify this bond and solidarity between the Asian community and the Black community? Because that that's really an important piece of moving forward. I think, and it's interesting because my and my perspective is from LA, but I also realize my perspective in LA is different. I was lucky enough that very young we lived in a neighborhood that was very mix and actually primarily black. So when 1992 happened and you saw these like tensions happening, granted we lived in like West LA, so it was a little bit further removed. We saw people like, oh, you know, like I went after school and I went to the black family's house after school. Like, is that still okay? You know, like, is that still okay? And, and luckily, so my experience was like, I was one of the lucky ones, but I think we really need to look to the youth. I honestly think we need to look to the youth because I think I look at Gen Z and I see a lot more open-mindedness. I see a lot more young people fighting for ethnic studies. And I think if we can make people understand that we're trying to solidify a bond that used to be there and that we were broken apart at some point, we're not just building something new. I, I think that's the way I really think we need to look to the youth because I do understand that tensions die hard. You know, and, and and not all is right in LA or across you know the country, but I think the youth the youth are the ones that I think are going to be the ones who figure this out. I think they're the ones who know who find out. They they get radicalized younger, you know. So yeah. well, our TikTok is teaching everybody everything. So Jeez. yeah, and I I love it. I can barely work TikTok myself, but <laughs> when I can figure it out, I love it and. I think that's it. I think when people realize that there's, you know, what's going on, and, and especially in the past couple of years, yeah, we just need to stop using the phrase stop Asian hate, which I never explained, and I feel like I should. <laughs> All right, can I do it? My, my thing with the phrase stop Asian hate is it is accurate, yes, because there was definitely another uptick in anti-Asian hate crimes, but it sort of puts it on... Like for Asian folks, especially to be mindful of how we are a wedge, it is easy to say that, oh, like, and I've seen it 
in some Asian publications, like they find three cases where the perpetrators of the crimes were black or brown, and suddenly it becomes this Asian versus black, Asian versus brown. So stop Asian hate. I don't like that it points specifically only to the Asian victims. Like, I think we need to understand that the root of this is, again, white supremacy, and that if Asian folks are experiencing hate, it is because black and brown folks are experiencing hate. You know that phrase, like, we're not free until black people are free? That's what we need to remember. So, you know, I saw, like, there was a group of us who put together, like, an action, and we were struggling with why we were calling it Stop Asian Hate. We are like, that's what people know. And you're like, no, we need to build collective power. So I, 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 I like, I want to flip that. And I get the phrase stop Asian hate's really easy, but I want to flip that. Like, I think if we're seeing communities get targeted, we need to build collective power. We need to understand that our struggles are connected. Like what happened to, you know, a black person at the hands of a cop, or it is the same thing that happens to an Asian person at the hands of a cop. Or if we're seeing these tensions that it's like linked back to, you know, white supremacy and so building collective power i think is like a much more affirmative positive way but yeah that was just a something yeah, no, like we put together. you know yeah. I, I i love what you put out there i love what you put out there and it's the reason i've shifted to the global majority versus people of color you know yeah. that the empowerment message i believe needs to I start that. the global majority is now like taking like root in my vocabulary. I, 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 love, I love it. I love it. It's so important. And it, and it just reminds us the collective power and the unit, yeah. you know, the possibility of unity in what, what we can do to fight against white supremacy. It requires yeah. us all to, together. So I love what you're saying. You know, you said something that I also love. A lot of things you say I love. So, but this is when I want to, I yeah, it's true. But uh, this is what I want to, I want to share with you to have you talk about a little bit. You said it takes conflict, cooperation, and solidarity moving together in different spaces. That's so, that's so amazing. Can you say what's in your head when you, when you said that? Yeah, I I think, and it's something that happens, I think, especially when you organize and you organize and you organize, you feel like, am I doing enough? Are we just doing the same thing? Should we be doing more? But I think what happens is that, you know, I've seen a lot of organizers and I see a lot of people burn out, right? I see campaigns burn out. But I think if people realize that, like, if we're all actually fighting for the same things concurrently, that's what we need. We need to, you know, like, for some folks, it's like, for example, I'm Asian American. I work in solidarity with a lot of, like, Black organizations, brown organizations, right? That's one way to, like, what's my lane? Like, let me reach out to the people that I might have their ear, and maybe they're Asian, maybe they're Filipino, maybe they're second generation, maybe they're Angelinos, you know, what can I tap into? And, like, if we don't agree, let's figure out why we're not agreeing. Because I bet you we agree. We just have, a, like, we're just not using the same tactics. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's also respecting that people have different tactics for doing things, you know. Some people want to get out the vote. Get out the vote. Some people don't want to be involved in politics and they want to do mutual aid. Do mutual aid. I think I just think that everyone should play a role. We don't have to play the same one, though. <laughs> well, and, right. and I also would add to that not to be so afraid of conflict. I mean, the conversation yeah. we're having today, mm-hmm. you know, it's yeah. so important that we have these conversations yeah. amongst us. Yeah. The, you know, the narrative is that we have to have sit down and have these conversations with, you know, the white community. But we don't ever talk about sitting down and having these conversations amongst yeah. them. That's yeah. not 
that's not pushed enough. So don't be afraid of our own internal conflict. Let's talk about it. Yeah. And there's going to be times where, you know, I think it's another thing, too, is that if, especially for folks who like you and I, we've been around the academic side, we've been around organizers, just because everyone has the same understanding, it doesn't mean people aren't going to falter, right? Something new pops up, someone has a quick take on something, and then somebody goes, oh, I don't agree with that. And suddenly it becomes like, wait a second, talk it out. That's yeah. okay. Yeah, that's okay. You know, um, I think there's almost like a this weird feeling that I think I've seen folks get that they're supposed to have the right answer right away just because they know the right vocabulary, right? Yeah. Like, sure. no, <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, maybe we can get there together. So, yeah, I agree. Conflict is necessary. And conflict doesn't have to be a knockdown, drag out, we're falling out, end all, be all <laughs> like right. discussion. Yeah. Absolutely. I agree. You know, this has been such a, a powerful, positive, and affirming conversation. I was going to get into LAPD, but that would just bring the tone down. So, <laughs> it's okay. don't do that. I'm not going to do that. I, I will say one thing, though. You said that LAPD shouldn't fear you. But my question is, why shouldn't they fear you? You have a huge network. You have significant <laughs> visibility. Why shouldn't they fear your fire? They should. I think they should fear my fire in that way. But when I'm standing in front of you and I'm standing there usually in like sweatpants, overall sneakers, neon green hat, and you're holding this weapon to my face. You really shouldn't be afraid of me to the point because that's the, the justification, right? I know we're not talking about LAPD, but that's the justification that law enforcement users uses all the time, right? I feared for my life. I was in danger. I'm yeah. five foot four. I don't look fast. So they can't say I look fast. <laughs> They've probably seen me. They know I'm not fast. Um, <laughs> I'm five four. I stand there with a phone or a notebook and a pen. And they're going to raise their weapons and say they were afraid of me. And that's just the funniest thing to me. You know, like, I, I absolutely agree with you in the literal sense, but I believe this. That's, what I, meant. that's what I meant. You know, I meant the literal I sense. Other than that, they should be afraid of, honestly, they should be afraid of a lot of people in this city because people in this city, and it's beautiful to see that it's a lot of young folks younger than me are organizing within L.A., and their eyes are on LAPD and the LA Sheriff's Department and they are watching their every move and it's beautiful. Like it is, like there are young folks who know, like I want LAPD to be afraid of me, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. For sure, they need to be afraid of something. And that's all I'm gonna say about it because I don't wanna end. You know what, you're right. That's a perfect way to, <laughs> to concisely. <laughs> I wanna know what you do for your mental health because I'm a therapist and I always have to know how activists yeah. ground themselves. And, what are you doing to take care of yourself in all of this? I, there's multiple things. One, I'm lucky to have some really solid people in my life. I have friends from college who are activated at the same time who, when I say I am reaching organizer burnout, and that sounds like a cliche, they go, no, that's real. I'm outside your apartment. We're going to go get food. We're going to go, you know, grab a drink. We're going to get you away from your computer off of your phone. I have friends that, you know, I feel, I think I've, I'm lucky enough to have people that when I say like, I just need to talk this one out and it's not going to be pretty. They're not going to be like, ugh, Debbie Downer, <laughs> you know, right. they're like, okay, let's do that. So I, I, I'm very lucky that I have a good network of folks. And, you know, in 2020, 
I met all of these people being at protests, folks I didn't know before, photographers, journalists, other organizers. And we created this sort of network and we, we, we made it a goal that while we may have been trauma bonded, that we were going to surpass the trauma and like, that you know, like our bond wasn't going to just be that trauma bond of like, oh, we all ducked behind a car together. Like, no, 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 no. That may ha- be how we became friends. But now we have backyard boogies together. We have a group chat. Like we made it sort of a, a goal to outweigh, you know, to balance the scales so that it tipped in the favor of interpersonal friendships. And it just so happens that we had that trauma bond to start. Well, so. now look, what you're saying is that you've built community within community, which strengthens yeah. the, you know, your yeah. passion for work, which is incredible. Yeah, because it's, it, I think that's just it. Community building is so important and it's small. It doesn't, ha- you don't have to build a whole village. Sometimes you just need to build, you know, your one house. <laughs> I, you know I don't, I don't think you all have suppressed it. I think you're trying to figure out a way to work through it. I don't hear anything yeah. admitting it. It's just like, you know, we're trying to find a way to, to work through it. And that's healthy. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think it was just becoming that goal of like, we're not just going to be the joke is like, we don't want to just tell our kids that like, oh, yeah, uncle and I used to wear a bulletproof vest. It'd be like, but also he cooks a mean barbecue. Like, did you know that? You know, like, I know that because we also hang out as friends. Like, yeah. <laughs> that's great. I love that. You are just great. I appreciate you and your time. Please tell everyone where they can find you on social media and your website and everything. Please, please lay that yeah, out. Yeah, I'm mostly on Instagram. My handle is so long. I started it when I didn't think I'd have to give it to people that didn't know me. So, <laughs> yeah, it's DZ. It's D five E's, two Z's, three Y's. Yeah, um, I'm also on Twitter, but you can usually find most of you can usually find me via Instagram. Like, there's links to everything there, but. Yeah, I try to, in my Instagram, I try to, it's a balance of, it's who I am. You're going to see me comment on LA sports. You're going to see pictures of my dog and then you'll see the actions I go to and, you know, the campaigns that I'm trying to support. So, you know, that's my version of being well-rounded. Yes. (laughs) Hey, we all need our own version. Is there a website people can go to or? Um, The link is actually in my Instagram. It's probably easier that way, but it's a link tree. And the link tree, if you're just searching, is D-Barbadillo, D-I-B-A-R-B-A-D-I-L-L-O. That's mostly just links to, you know, things that I've done, things that I've worked on. But it's also a good, you know, way to understand, you know, what I'm talking about. (laughs) Yeah, very educational. I appreciate it all. Well, Steve, thank you so much again for coming on. This was a great conversation. I'd love to catch up with you again in the future to see Absolutely. what you're mm-hmm. okay, right on. All right. Thanks again. Take care, Dee. Okay, see you too. Bye-bye. Bye. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also, leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller.